Hello, everyone. You are in good traffic. Thank you so much for your time today, your interest in urban planning and urban design, and for joining us to listen to this episode. I'm joined today by Western Water Girl from TikTok, Instagram, and some other places as well. Teal Leto is her name um, that I'm sure most people call you, although I know you by Western Water Girl more specifically. But Teal, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for spending some time. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. This is a long time in the making. I believe we have some DMs that go back quite a few months talking about doing this. And uh, I'm glad that we're finally sitting down to chat. I've been a huge fan of your work, of your videos, of your TikTok, and a lot of your commentary on the water crisis. And specifically here in the Southwest, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So kind of right dead smack in the middle of a lot of the things you're talking about. So I found it very informative to to follow along your journey as you talk about a lot of these things and dive deeply into the intricacies. Um, but I think this is a great and interesting and needed conversation in the city planning world to start talking about water more, right? And uh, it's something that's been neglected, I think, a lot, even in my circles of folks that are really engaged in the adjacent um, conversations to this, to water, but that don't tend to get into this conversation specifically normally. And it's something that's always puzzled me. I think there's a weird rub between kind of the urbanism movement and the environmental movement in a lot of ways. And it's almost like the rural folks and the city folks. And I think we we need each other <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, and we need to, to have more cross-functional and cross-sectional conversations. So I guess that that's kind of the, the impetus for really wanting to have you on and, and to talk to you about your work and, and your research and all of that, but also how it pertains to cities and specifically those here in the Southwest. So I guess a good place to jump into is why water? Like why, why did this become the thing that you dedicated the, the vast amount of your working life to, to kind of diving deeper into and to really trying to find solutions in and around here in the United States? Well, first off, water is life. Water is in everything. It's in every facet of all of our lives. There's a water cost to everything we do. Um, and I think that water enables us to enjoy the best part of our lives. Um, and so I think that that thread has kind of followed me throughout my whole life. But I did grow up in a river town. Um, so the town I live in, there's a river that runs right in the middle of it. It's kind of the heart of our community. I learned to be a raft guide as soon as I could. Mm. Um, I raft guided throughout college. I founded a raft racing team and we were able to attend the national rafting championships and we won. So then we got to go to the world rafting championships twice. And then in college, like I founded a club dedicated to educating people about water resource issues. And I really just think it was all kind of connected to that thread of like water is in everything in my life. And I just felt like not enough people were fighting to protect it and to conserve it and use it in like the most sustainable manner possible. Most definitely. I, I agree. That's, that's really an interesting story. So it was almost a mode of sport and learning to love it through that way that you ended up kind of becoming a, you know, in this capacity, sustainability, conservation, that sort of conversation. Absolutely. And traveling uh, to go raft racing was really, really cool because I really discovered like this connection across cultural barriers uh, surrounding water and rivers. And it was just really, really cool to see this, um, I don't know, like brotherhood amongst people who love rivers. I could be standing next to a river uh, with somebody who doesn't speak English and we're still pointing at the same features and talking about how to get our raft through it. And it just felt 
really connecting. But then I also realized that no matter like what government you live under or like what language you speak, like your local river probably has some kind of threat. And there's like not enough people that are really looking into that and talking about it so that their watershed that they're a community of, and I assure you that every person on earth is in a watershed community. Um, like they're not, they're not necessarily taking an active role in protecting that watershed. Mm. And I think that's really important. Gotcha. Yeah, no. And I, I see that a lot in the city's conversation as I alluded to earlier, but it seems like uh, for us that live in large metro areas in the United States, we hear about water as like a, a rural town problem, a thing that those people over there are dealing with, man, that must suck to not live in a, a large population center where water's a guarantee where every time I turn my faucet on, there's no question of what's going to come out and, you know, and all the utilities that come after that, right? Like my yard and all this stuff. I don't have to think about that. That that's, that's a rural problem. That's a suburban, maybe outskirts problem in certain impoverished cities, things like that. But obviously we're starting to see, at least we are here in Phoenix, that that is not the case at all. I mean, to, at least those of us that are trying to be cognizant of it are, it seems like a lot of folks are still behaving as though there's there's an unlimited supply. But what would you say, this might be a large question, but how would you summarize kind of the current stasis of water in the Southwest? Like, well, how would you just... Dis- yeah, go ahead. It's, it's okay. I just want to say first off that I would say that that urban rural divide is so, so magnified in the water world. Mm. It's a, it's a big problem. And there's a lot of discussion where it's framed as like us versus them, rural communities, rural agricultural communities versus cities. Um, and that is definitely kind of where the state of water communications and like water policy is at this time. Uh, but are you asking me to like summarize the the Colorado River situation in general? That would be great. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured. <laughs> I I, um, I think a lot of people need that, right? Like, I think unfortunately, yeah. even those of us that are in you know Southern California, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, like a lot of folks, you don't you don't have to think about it day to day, but you should be at this point. And I think that's what you've really opened my eyes and a lot of the other folks' eyes to of like, hey, this is not a far off distant reality like this is here and it's happening so i think that'd be great if you could summarize that and also just your general thoughts on you know maybe the this the current state of all of these things right now absolutely well uh, i think you have to start at the, the the beginning uh at least for settlers white settlers in the west obviously there were indigenous people in this area utilizing sure. the colorado river basin for millennia Um, But in 1922, the Colorado River Compact was signed and it allocated uh, water to all of the states within the basin. Um, And it also created this like arbitrary geographical boundary of the upper basin and the lower basin, um, which is divided at Lake Powell. And the upper basin has Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico. And the lower basin has Nevada, Arizona and California. And both of the basins are supposed to get 7.5 million acre feet of water. We measure water in acre feet. We can touch on that later, but it's kind of a ridiculous unit of measurement, but that's what we use. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we assume that there's going to be 16.5 million acre feet of water in the Colorado River Basin every year. And uh, we were wrong. And so there's just like a structural budget deficit in the Colorado River Basin to begin with. Um, Tree ring data has shown that there's actually for the last 900 years, the average has been about 14.3 million acre feet. Hmm. And in the last 23 years, the average has been closer to 12.4 million acre feet. 
So we're looking at like a quarter of the allocation overall, just like not existing in the system many years. Um, And then recently, like I said, in the last 20 years, we've just been seeing the flows decline aggressively. um, And that is directly uh, connected to the heating of our planet, which is causing us to have uh, more unpredictable snowpack in the Rocky Mountains, which is where all of the water in the Colorado River Basin comes from. Um, But also the West has been growing rapidly. I mean, Phoenix was one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in the United States. And um, yeah, so we've been consuming more water as well. But also I do want to acknowledge, I do think cities are a really important part of this conversation. But where the water is going, uh, only about 10% of the water in the river basin is going to cities and municipalities. Mm -hmm. Another 10% is going to industrial use. And then the rest, which is 80%, is going to irrigated agriculture. Hmm. So um, we we really need to instill an ethic of water conservation amongst all industries in the Colorado River Basin, though, because we have to deal with this huge budget deficit. And that's what led to um, our reservoirs getting super low. I'm sure everybody saw those like shocking photos of Lake Powell and uh, Lake Mead super, super low. They are back up a little bit, but they did reach record-breaking low levels within the last year. And not only is that not great for our water supply, but we also rely on Lake Powell and Glen Canyon Dam to generate power for a significant portion of the West. So there's just a lot at stake, and we have been dealing with some bad policy making from the early 20th century for over a century now. And it's, we're kind of having a reckoning. (laughs) No, most definitely. Could you maybe touch on a couple of those policies a little bit and just in detail? I know I've done a bit of reading and a lot prompted by your work on this. Um, but just to kind of give everyone a, a 101 entry level Mm -hmm. idea into what some of those were that have set the precedent for the current problem that we're in today. Absolutely. Um, first off, thank you for this question, because I feel like a lot of people don't want to look back and kind of see like how we got here. Um, I think a lot of the the coverage has been like really short sighted on this crisis. And I think it's really important for us to kind of like have a holistic picture of what's going on. Um, Basically, back in the 1800s, we started paying people to move out west, and we gave them 160 acres to farm in the Homestead Act. And uh, they could keep it for free as long as they were able to farm it, but they had to get water from somewhere. And in the East, it was super easy. There's water everywhere over there. <laughs> so basically they, they governed water where if you own property and there's water on the property, then you own access to that water. But when they tried to do that out West, they like quickly realized that a lot of these 160 acre lots, like just didn't have water on them. So they had to get water from somewhere. So they started pumping it in from like other places. And that led to like a whole new doctrine of allocating water that is applied in the West. And that is called the doctrine of prior appropriation. And oftentimes it's referred to as first in time, first in right. So the first person who diverted water from a stream, even if that stream isn't on their property or in their state, <laughs> they, they have a right to the full share that they diverted originally before anyone else on that stream. Um, and they're called senior water rights holders. So this creates like a chronological hierarchy of water rights in the West. Um, And it also kind of discourages um, people from using less water because 
there's an inherent use it or lose it clause because they were really concerned that people would go around just like diverting streams for future speculative use. So they were like, well, you need to put this to a beneficial consumptive use immediately or you're going to lose access to this water, right? Um, but many people uh, are now holding these super old water rights and they have to use all of it. So they're growing really water intensive crops or maybe they're even just flooding their fields at the end of the season in order to use all of their water. It creates like this perverse incentive to use as much as they can. Um, and it really like disincentivizes irrigators in particular like farmers from growing better crops or upgrading their irrigation efficiency. Um, I know like in my area, there's a, a valley like just a couple miles away from me called Montezuma Valley. And it used to be one of the like biggest apple producing areas in the world. Um, and they have all these like heirloom orchards and farmers are ripping out these old apple trees to plant alfalfa so that they can use their whole water, right? Oh, and wow. It, yeah, and this just kind of like, you can see this play out in like so many different parts of how water is managed in the West. We treated it like it was endless and then we also required people to use the maximum amount in their right. And unfortunately, water rights in, at least in my state, in Colorado, it's kind of different in each state, but in Colorado, water rights are attached to property rights. Hmm. So you, if you lose portion of your water rights, say you use like two thirds of your water right and you lose that extra third in the future, um, then your property value can go down. So like, hmm. you're really, yeah. really incentivized not to <laughs> reduce your water consumption in that way. No, most definitely. And we know, I mean, those those that are listening to this show and that are very into cities, we talk about NIMBYs a lot and the idea of how much property value drives a lot of the discourse that ultimately impacts every single thing that we despise about cities. Um, those of us that love cities, the things we despise about them, you know what I mean? So um, it's fascinating that even in this regard, that gets in the way of at the end of the day, property value is king, and it is the thing that individuals, no matter how good-natured you seem to be, <laughs> folks seem to get to this point where that is the end-all, be-all of almost every conversation. Even when we're talking about, like you said in the very beginning, the lifeblood of everything in water, and that's very, you know, very fascinating to get to that point. I'm curious, being in Phoenix here, um, and you talked about how every state is different, we are currently in the middle of this interesting conversation about running a a system to where we can desalinate water and bring it up from the Sea of Cortez down in Mexico. Um, and I know I, I just listened to that daily episode from the New York Times last week, and then I opened TikTok and I saw your video and I was like, awesome. I knew this was coming. I knew you were going to have something to say about this. Um, a, how ridiculous of an idea is it? B is there a better idea and see if so, you know, how would you, how would you pitch an alternative or support it? I, I won't, I won't jump the gun and assume you're going to go against it, but I do, I'm going to make that assumption. Well, I think you are making a correct assumption because it's literally the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> And also one of the funniest parts of that daily episode was that they went down to Puerto Penasco where they said they were going to build yep. this plant and like nobody down there has been spoken to. They've heard nothing about it. The state of Arizona has put a billion dollars into the commission that like has come up with this idea. And this is what they have come up with. I'm just like mind blown. 
Yeah. So yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. We can get into that in detail if you want, but like my, my answer to your question B is what is a better idea? And it's super simple. Just use less water. Mm. Sure. <laughs> and I, there's like a lot of complicated caveats to that answer, but the answer is really simple. We need to focus on conserving water, not augmenting new water resources. Because another factor of that doctrine of prior appropriation is that like you can just keep allocating a water source until it's like sucked dry, mm. which means if we decide to start desalinating water to provide for these water rights, like where where does it end? Do we just right. keep building more and more desalination plants? It just doesn't make sense. Eventually, we have to start talking about how to use less water with a larger population. And like, they literally have a term for that. It's called decoupling water use from population growth. And it's totally possible. Tons of cities throughout the US have done this, uh, but you do have to like make it a priority. Run me through, give me an example of a city or, or a couple that have done a successful job of that and how they've, or, you know, somewhat how they've done, done that. Uh, all of the cities in the Las Vegas Valley are a great example of this. Um, all of them, except for one, recycle their their wastewater. Um, Las Vegas itself was able to add 750,000 new citizens while reducing their water consumption by 27%. And I know this because they actually flew me out to Vegas and I got to go check out all of their water processing facilities. And we went to Lake Mead and it was a really cool experience, but also I would, I just have give them mad props. Like they are trailblazing in the world of water conservation. They're also uh, compensating homeowners to remove grass and put a conservation easement on their lease so that the future homeowners cannot reinstall grass. And then they're removing non-functional turf grass, which there's like a whole, it's defined in a certain way, but the state of Nevada actually outlawed non-functional turf grass for mm. municipalities and like commercial buildings, which is really, really cool. Um, so they're, they're just like being really proactive and this has been an effort for them for a really long time, but also it was really obvious why they had to do this because the intake for Las Vegas and Lake Mead dried up like a while ago. And then they had a couple of other backup intakes and they knew that it would, they, it would come to a point where they would need a new intake. So they actually built an intake that's below Deadpool on Lake Mead so that yeah. they will be able to continue accessing water when no one else can, which is just a total baller move first off. But like it spent like the general manager describes it as like, it was a billion dollar insurance policy. Like it wow. cost them a ton of money and they hoped to never have to turn it on. And they did in 2022. Hmm. So that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, no. But they're really prepared because they have to be. Right. But it's a better billion dollars spent on that than just potential thought research into maybe building a pipeline that goes uphill through the desert across Absolutely. a border. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The power demands for desalination are also kind of insane. They're the, the another concern that a lot of environmentalists brought up when that project was being is being still being discussed. They talked about this in the daily episode, but like what to do with the brine afterwards. Right. And that's like an, a sea, like it's like, it's like confined area. So it could have like really devastating impacts on the environment there. And like, we've already just absolutely obliterated the Colorado river Delta in the sea of Cortez. And I don't think we need to destroy like more marine ecosystems down there, but no, you most know. definitely. So why, why has Vegas been, and I was, I'm so happy that you used Vegas as the example, because it is the one that I'm 
semi familiar with in terms of a lot of that. And I, and I've, I've wondered for a while, and I know there's some legal reasonings that you kind of alluded to earlier, but why, why is a city not, like Phoenix not rapidly trying to learn and adapt and adopt what Vegas has kind of pioneered and, and been able to figure out over the last decade or so? Well, Vegas, Nevada in general, I should say, has the smallest allocation in the Colorado River Basin. It's like teeny tiny. It's 275,000 acre feet, um, which is, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. But it's really not very much. Um, and so they already didn't have a lot of water to work with. And then on top of that, like, they don't have like a huge booming ag industry for them to go to, to like pay off to get water rights. Like they don't, they only have so much agricultural activity um, in that area. And that also helped them in being able to push through these water conservation um, like efforts, I guess, like all of the stuff that they've been doing. They don't have this massive stakeholder group that is traditionally pretty conservative and afraid of change to fight when they're trying to instill this water conservation ethic in their area and, and like amongst their constituents. I think it's really, really amazing. They also had really strong leadership. That's the other thing is like, mm. they have had the gentleman who manages now, um, John Ensminger, and then the person before him, who I've also done <laughs> a TikTok video where I like was quoting her for a podcast interview she did. I can't remember her name right now. I think it's Pat Mulroy, but mm. she was just, she was a fiery individual and she saw the writing on the wall and knew that Vegas needed to do something. Um, so I think it's a mix of like the right stakeholder groups and like a little bit of luck and then strong leadership who was willing to like put their neck out there and be like, no, this is the right thing. Like, this is what we need to do for our constituents and like the people who are going to live here in the future. But also I do want to throw out that like, we knew back in the 1800s that this was a bad idea. There were people mm. in the 1800s, like John Wesley Powell, who was like, you guys are not acknowledging how dry it is out here. <laughs> and uh, he definitely predicted that we would be arguing over water like this. And we kind of talked about how uh, they had to build that intake. And that's because, you know, when Lake Mead gets low enough, like they just can't take their water out of the lake. And I think that Phoenix maybe doesn't feel that pressure because there isn't like the same, like, oh, we won't be able to suck our water out of this lake. But I will throw out there that in the recent negotiations um, with the Colorado River Basin states around, I think this was back in like January or February of this year, um, there were representatives from California that genuinely floated the idea of cutting Phoenix or Denver off from their water from the Colorado River before they would cut off their own farmers. Wow. And legally speaking, it's kind of unclear if they could do that because technically those farmers in the Imperial Valley do have the oldest and largest water rights in the entire basin. Hmm. Yeah, no, that is super fascinating. And I, and I, I know the agricultural piece is massive. Um, and I know that's something that's going to have to be dealt with if we want to have any sort of long-term solution. But in terms of folks that are living in metro areas, so those out here in the in the Southwest, on an individual level, like let's do this in two, two phases. The first is on an individual household level. What can you do now starting today that you would advise as Western Water Girl, what would you advise that families of the West do today to better prepare themselves, their wallet, and their future? And then 
kind of on a larger scale, each municipality, let's say, what, what would they do if, if it was up to you and you were advising them? Individually, the number one thing that people can do to reduce their water footprint is eat less beef mm-hmm. um, or any like products that are produced by cows. Um, I will put a caveat out there that I am not vegan. I absolutely love cheese. I'll eat a burger every once in a while. Um, I don't believe in telling people that they have to cut things out of their diet, but I do believe in telling people, hey, maybe don't eat as much of that. Um, I'm like a lot of people in my comments will be like, everybody needs to be vegan. And I really just, I don't quite support that because I know that there are people who live in food deserts and they're not able to access fresh produce and things like that. So I do understand if that's like, if your family needs to eat beef to survive understood, I'm not going to judge you for that. Um, but the next thing you can do is get like efficient appliances within your home and make sure that your home doesn't have any leaks. Um, And then uh, you can remove your lawn, which a lot of people really, really don't like, but grass consumes a ton of water. About 50% of the water in residential homes goes to outdoor irrigation. So that's a really big part of it is growing the plants that are native to your area, or at least can survive in the climate that you live in. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I, I'm shaking my head because here in Phoenix, the amount of lawns that I see everywhere and not like bad ones, like pristine, nice lawns. And then you just know <laughs> you're like, that is expensive in many ways in a <laughs> multiplicative of ways. So you well, see about- in Vegas, they also have water cops. So like they do have a couple of people who have lawns, but they also have people who literally drive around and ensure that people are only watering their lawns when they're supposed to. And they can give them like a huge fine. If it's like going onto the concrete and stuff like that. So like, even if you want to keep your lawn, you should also be really careful with how you're watering it and when you're watering it and stuff like that. Right. Because it's one of those things, you know, if you want one, it doesn't mean it has to be easy. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed the right for it to be just this easy, you know, free of all inconvenience sort of ownership policy. Like there should be some steps you have to go through. And it also probably begs the question, I'm just thinking in terms of that property value conversation, if the whole city is under the same rules, like you don't get the same property to property, probably discrepancy in terms of value where it's like, well, if all my neighbors have grass and I don't, then my house is going to be worth, worth less. Well, if no one has the the lawn, then it kind of equalizes that threat and makes that a non-starter in terms of an opposition point. So it does make sense that that would also alleviate some of that stress, the more widespread you can make it because it gets rid of the whole disparity that it would exist there. How about in terms of municipalities and, and cities and some of these places? I mean, we could talk about cities as big as Phoenix, but also just the cities that surround it and the municipalities that are, you know, the suburbs that surround these places. What are some of the things that they can do on a municipality level to start to inch the needle in the right direction here? Um, well, again, they can remove their lawns. So anywhere they have non-functional turf grass, I, I know I sound like a broken record on this. No. I just keep saying it. But um, unfortunately, that is where like a lot of the water in cities goes. And I, I'm not saying we need to like rip up like soccer fields and stuff like that. Like I understand that there's places where grass is functional and like people enjoy it, but we don't need it. In my town, for example, there's a, a street that there's just a median in the middle that's just covered in grass and like it's hmm. watered all all throughout the summer and you can't even 
like you could not walk on this or like hang out in that grass if you wanted to because it's in the middle of a street. Sure. <laughs> it's just aesthetic. Yes, exactly. Um, one of the other things that cities can do, and this is a huge investment, but also if we're talking about desalinating, which is also a huge investment, I think yeah. it makes more sense, <laughs> which would be using reclaimed wastewater. Um, and even if you're not using it immediately, so like in Vegas, the reclaimed wastewater that they have, they actually put into the Vegas wash which is doing like a huge ecological restoration project, but then it floats back into uh, Lake Mead, which is great because the solution to pollution is through dilution. So if you were somebody who was like, kind of like grossed out a little bit by the idea of drinking reclaimed wastewater, it's definitely diluted. If it's going to move into one of the, the largest reservoir in the United States, it's going to mix in there with some quote unquote clean water, but <laughs> I, I, I feel pretty strongly that you, that drinking treated wastewater is fine, but I know some people have some qualms about it. <laughs> those, those were some bars right there. Can you say that again? I want to make sure I got that down. What was the same? I don't, I don't think I can. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. That was awesome. So when, if you had to get your crystal ball out and look into the future 10 years, what do you think is the most likely outcome that cities like Phoenix are going to end up taking as a path forward to find a solution to this? Do you think it is the desalination route and just bite the bullet on cost and environmental you know, output that's going to be obviously a terrible, terrible thing for a lot of people and some that are lower socioeconomic status and communities that most folks here will never see or come in contact with? Do you think that is the most likely thing? Do you think the pipe pipeline approaches or is there is there another thing that maybe folks more in your circle are starting to talk about in terms of a large widespread technology that you think might come in and and take and have some momentum here i mean if i had a crystal ball and i saw phoenix in 10 years from now i would see them scrambling to purchase water from nearby agricultural water rights holders hmm. um and I mean, no hate to you guys in Arizona, but to be honest, y'all are crazy enough. I could see you pursuing this crazy desalination idea. Uh, but I also see you guys doing it and then being like, oh my God, why did we do this? Because it's just a ton of money and then it's a lot of maintenance and upkeep. And again, like I said, it's just going to be endless. Like at some point in time, you right. do have to figure out a way to conserve water. So that's really like, there's no like one, like, cure all for this crisis it's going to involve every sector being like okay how can we do what we do with the least amount of water and that includes people who live in cities and it includes golf courses and it includes farmers it includes data centers it includes every industry that wants to operate in the southwest um, it just, it, it means being like, I'm sorry, but if you wanted to have a green lawn, you should live east of the 100 meridian. I don't know what else to tell you, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that, um, we're moving quickly enough in that direction necessarily. People are definitely pushing back on it, but yeah, here, here in the upper basin, there's a lot of discussion about purchasing water rights from, uh, irrigation, like people who are living in rural agricultural communities and sending them to larger cities like Denver and Phoenix and stuff like that, or to hmm. fulfill Colorado's obligation 
in the Colorado River Compact to provide water to California because California, like I said, has the oldest and strongest water rights in the and largest water rights in the Colorado River Basin. So we have an obligation to consistently fulfill that right, even if we don't get to use all of that water. Sure. It's frustrating. And, yeah, for sure. I was just going to ask about California because we haven't touched on that super in, in depth here. I feel like over the last decade or so, that has been the place that has been talked about in terms of drought nationally and internationally more than probably anywhere, just in terms of, you know, I remember growing up, going to LA and seeing fountains turned off and wondering why and um, starting to hear about that as, oh, this is something that's a real thing here. But you think of California, you think of beach, you don't think, obviously, it's a very different type of water, but you don't think of these sorts of things like drought right off the top of your head. Where, where do they stand kind of this? I know you said that you kind of got into it there with the fact that they have kind of the first say on a lot of these things. Um, are they still kind of in the worst place as they were a few years ago or have a lot of other places maybe surpassed them and they've, they've maybe just through the legalities of things gotten themselves in a better position than some other spots? I think that California has the securest water rights in the Colorado River Basin. They ha they definitely are, you know, the legal Goliath within the basin. They have the strongest claim to utilizing their entire water right. But I will also say that they consistently use more than what is their water right. And that's part of the reason why we're in this whole boondoggle to begin with. <laughs> and I, I think, yeah, California is not prioritizing conserving water like it should be because they're like, well, you guys can do it first. We legally are entitled to this much water and the rest of you guys can conserve it. Because again, we're gonna kind of like zoom back out to that doctrine of prior, a prior appropriation, which says that whoever diverted the water first is entitled to their full share before any other users on the stream. And California diverted, diverted their water first. And so they, will not be sharing this drought equitably with other people throughout the basin or in other states and entities, I should say, not just people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. Wow. It's, yeah. it's a, it's frustrating. California definitely gives off the vibes of like, well, my dad's a lawyer, so you can sue me. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is what, that is what it feels like in a lot of ways. And I get that feeling around here for sure as well. Have you, are you familiar with the salt river project here in Phoenix at all? Yes. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I, I mean, beyond the fact that I have bike paths that run along all the the uh, canals here that I love about that, what are your thoughts on that kind of approach to just the movement of water around a large, sprawling metropolitan suburban area? Because I do think it's a really fascinating model. And if you could give a little background too, just you know, that would be awesome as well. Oh man, I don't know if I'm familiar enough with it to give some background. Sure. Um. I, I can say that the Salt River Project like delivers a ton of water for irrigation. Most of that water is going to older water rights in the Salt River for irrigators. Um, and it, for the most part, completely drains the Salt River before it gets to Phoenix. This year was one of the first years that the Salt River ran through Phoenix. I actually went there for an event that was called like, where is the river? Because normally it's dry, but it was running, which was really funny. <laughs> was that was, was that like late spring this year when it was absolutely insane the yeah yeah, yeah. it was crazy yeah. i saw the verde river when it was at like i think like twenty four thousand cfs or something which it's normally like below a thousand like it's like super low yeah it was nuts <laughs> i live right by tempe town lake area so i am like 
I was right there when that was every night. I'm just going down there staring at it. Like I've never seen this have even more than this tiny trickling stream through the middle. And now it's just this roaring side to side wash. That was wild to see. Absolutely. And I think there is some power to having like an active and living riparian zone in your city. And I think it would have been really cool if Phoenix had prioritized like keeping some portion of that river alive mm. and in its natural state for its citizens to enjoy and, and recreate in and appreciate and find solace and like some peace there because your guys' city is kind of wild and I hate driving there. <laughs> it, yes, agreed. <laughs> yeah. Imagine um, biking here. It's even more terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's really emblematic of what we do with most rivers out west. We we drain them almost entirely to use for agricultural purposes. And some of those farmers will argue that like that water drains back into the river, which sometimes it does. Sometimes we pump water up and out of a river basin, like where we pump the Colorado River into California <laughs> and it'll never go back to where it was originally. The water that we pump to, you know, the Imperial Valley, for example, it goes into the Salton Sea. Um, and it doesn't allow for the, the Colorado River Delta to exist. I talked about how we mm. annihilated that earlier. And yeah, like, yeah. that's the, we do the same thing to the Salt River. We kill the Salt River um, almost every year. And that's cause like we, only allowed water rights to be allocated to consumptive uses. Hmm. And we didn't acknowledge like the need of like ecosystems and like the existence of a river itself until like in Colorado was in like the 1970s in Utah. It wasn't until the two thousands, but yeah, it took a really long time for us to be like, Hey, wait a second. Maybe we should leave some water in the river, like for the river. So it can keep existing, which I think a wild also thought. is important. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's crazy. It's... But yeah, and that's what when I went to the when I went to Phoenix and I checked out the Salt River and the Verde River, it was beautiful. It was really cool, but it was also like heartbreaking because I saw a ton of like long-term Phoenix citizens that were just like what are they called? Phoenicians, right? Yeah, Phoenicians. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And they were standing in this like river walkway that like clearly like nobody like it didn't seem like people use it all that much. Like it, there was a lot of trash, a lot of garbage. You couldn't really get down to the river, but people were like standing there. This was like after the event there, there wasn't, this wasn't like people part of the event that I was in. I was just walking around after I was leaving and they were like almost in tears, just like, mm. Oh my God, this is so beautiful. I haven't seen this in so long. Like, this is so amazing. And it was just heartbreaking to me because I have a river in my town and that's where I go when I have a bad day, when I have a good day, I was there today. I'll be there tomorrow. And I was there yesterday. Yep. <laughs> it should yeah. be part of everybody's lives. <laughs> No, yeah, there's something about running healthy, moving water that I think is so therapeutic and so valuable to a sociology and to a society. And I think that is something that folks out here miss out on. And it probably perpetuates the, um, we'll call it an incongruency or like dis detachment from it in terms of a relational feeling. Like you don't, there's not a feeling of connection to water here, I think, as much, which makes it easier to disregard and neglect it in a lot of ways. That's a that's a really great point you bring up. Absolutely. And like you you said you live in Tempe, like Tempe Town Lake, like that's fault that's a an artificial water right. body. And like it's created with water that is sucked out of the salt river and like literally they were like we'll just create this like artificial water body for people to get this like artificial sense of connection to nature 
when they could have just had a healthy riparian ecosystem just coming through their community, which would have been way more valuable in my opinion. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense for you as an individual who's kind of dedicating your life to this. I think that that would be fair to say, right? This is your main, your main kind of, I, if, if you have other things that you think about and do work on this much, you're a genius. You're an absolute genius. <laughs> you, you are an incredible memorizer of, of facts and numbers, and I'm blown away by it. So first of all, if you have other things that you're this deep on, that is wow. <laughs> but assuming that this is your, your main thing or one of your main things, what, what is kind of your intended path in this world? Like, how do you see yourself as a steward of these environments? And also as a storyteller, who's helping distill a lot of really complex, um, information into really digestible bits that folks like me and others, us, uh, folks in the cities can understand. Um, how, how, how do you kind of see your pathway forward in that world? I, first off, I just want to thank you for, for sit, phrasing it that way. Like, I love the idea of being a storyteller. Like, humans are made to tell and listen to stories. And I think it's a really powerful tool. And I went to a conference, like, two years ago where this scientist was presenting about – he was an engineer. Honestly, I don't even – I barely understood what he was presenting about. It had something <laughs> to do with beaver dam analogs. But at the end, he said – it's really obvious that like we have plenty of data here in the Colorado River Basin, but we do not have enough people telling the story. Mm. And it just really stuck with me. And this was like around when I started my platform and I was like, this is important. We need people to be telling this story. And and I, I've been choosing to use social media to tell this story because it is a democratized platform where anybody can be a part of the conversation. And I also think that's really important. When I tried to get involved with water conservation work after college, um, I just kind of repeatedly kept getting this answer that was like, oh, sweetie, it's so sweet that you want to be involved. Like, mm. you're so naive. And it was just frustrating because I was like, no, like, I want to be there. I want to be hands on. I want to be in these rooms. I want to be part of these conversations. Yeah. So, like, I see myself working towards being a storyteller on a larger scale and continuing to use my platform, but also showing other environmentally or uh, just like activist minded individuals, how they can use their story to create the change that they want to see in the world, because that's really what I want to do. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I, I don't know. I also see myself possibly going to law school. I applied, but I didn't get enough scholarships. So we're going to do that again. Um, but I'm, I don't know. I'm, I just want to like ride the wave as long as it's here. That's what I've been telling my family. Yeah, no, that that sounds like exactly how I think about things in in my world, but I'm very, you know, blown away by that and the idea of the storytelling approach because I think the parallel between our two approaches is that there's a lot of you, I love the way you said it. The, there's a lot of data out there. Yeah, we need more data, of course, we need more research, but we also need to better utilize that which we already have. And I spent some time in city planning grad school and the first week of the program, I had, I think five different professors say something along the lines of in the class. Um, this profession has a lot of great people that sit in offices and, and pontificate about things and that crunch numbers and things, but we have no, we, we do not have enough people that go out and help the community and the world understand why they should care, why they matter, and then ultimately what to do about it. And so when you said that, that's instantly what popped in my head, which is this thing of like, we need people to distill 
things into things that others and everyone can can grasp and get their mind around. And that's really what I think you're doing as good as anyone right now. And so I'm really just appreciative of that work that you're doing and continuing to do it, especially as someone who lives in one of the spots that you're talking about a lot um, and a lot of your content. And so I've been personally very appreciative of it. Um, but also I just think in, on a larger scale, it's something that has a lot of implications long-term in terms of just that storytelling side of things. And when you go into the, the legal side of it, do you see that being like a advocating on behalf of advocacy groups or communities or, you know, a little bit of both or more just um, to help farther your personal research and things of that nature? Kind of all, all of the okay. above. Um, yeah. And then also just to be able to walk into a room at a conference and not have this pack of old men who are at every water conference, they call them water buffaloes, question <laughs> everything about my legitimacy in that room. I'd like to be able to go to a conference and when I ask a question about like, why aren't we addressing the use it or lose it policy and water allocation out West? And when somebody says like, oh, sweetie, you're so naive. I can be like, no, I'm not. I have a law degree. I know what I'm talking about and we need to fix this. So that's yeah. kind of the direction I would want to go in. I've also considered running for office, to be honest, and I'm pretty heavily involved in political organizing in my state. So that's awesome. That would be sweet. Would you do it at a you have any like as high as you could go or just municipal, smaller municipal level to start or? Well, I'll just like give you a hint that like Lauren Boebert is my representative. Yes. Say no more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. So, I, I know what that means. All right. <laughs> yeah. I will say just a shout out. I do like the guy who's running against her right now, but I, uh, I do see myself in something like that at some point in time in my future, but I don't know how close it is. <laughs> Teal for president. There we go. Western water girl for president. I'm about it. You got my vote. <laughs> the farmers are going to be like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that might be a tough one. You might have some some capital against you there, but I believe I believe we can figure it out. No, it's we'll okay. Get the, I, we'll I get, think I think we'll get them on board. <laughs> we'll get the urban. We'll get all the urbanists behind you. We'll we'll figure it out. <laughs> well, Teal, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. This has been an awesome conversation. It's been a little unorthodox for a lot of the the, the things that we normally talk about on this show. So I'm really excited that so early on in this podcast that we got to have this conversation too. Um, just one of the first few episodes. I've I like I said, we've been talking about this for a bit doing this. Um, but I think it is a foundational piece to cities and life in general, right? Like it's impossible to have a conversation about growth or living in any capacity without talking about water. And you've so eloquently put that. Um, and I'm excited about what you're going to keep doing um, and what you're already doing on TikTok. Again, one of my favorite people to follow. So can you tell people like where where's the best place for them to get in contact with you or, or consume some of the great hard work that you're putting in? Oh, thank you for the shout out. First yeah, off, I appreciate of that. Um, and also for letting me put my plug in here. Um, my at is Western Water Girl. I'm on TikTok and Instagram. And if you want to just hit me up individually, my email is westernwatergirl at gmail. And you're welcome to ask me all of your fun water-related questions. <laughs> oh, boy. You're open, opening up the faucet there in more ways than one. That's <laughs> I had to do it. Um, well, thank you, though. I really appreciate your time today. It's been awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you reaching out and I'm looking forward to listening to all the other episodes. 
Thank you. Yeah, out. we'll have to have you back on. I, I, I'm starting to, as we're having more of these, I'm starting to think about like groups of people that I think would be fascinating to have a conversation with each other. And so there's like water pairs with everything. I'm like, throw yeah. water with infrastructure, whether it be bike infrastructure, whatever. I'm like, there's so many interesting crossovers between these things. So we'll, de we'll definitely keep the conversation going and I'll make sure to do a good job at stewarding the water conversation whenever we talk about cities and making sure that I don't leave it out as I think a lot of folks in, in our realm tend to do. So. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for your efforts. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks again, Teal.